All right, we're in this series called Spirit-Filled Fruit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, it says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. We've already talked about all of those. If you missed those, go back and listen to it. And then we hit this one called goodness. Next week, faithfulness. Then we'll go gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Goodness. How do you guys love a good movie? Anybody love a good movie? All right. Most of the good movies that you watch are what? They're like epic stories of good versus evil, right? How many Lord of the Rings fans do we have in the building? All right. So that's classic. I mean, you got the Eye of Sauron, you know, you got the Hobbit and the Ring, you know, you got good versus evil, Chronicles of Narnia. How many guys like, some of you guys like the books more than the movie. I get that. But uh, but it's classic good versus evil. But then something started happening in storytelling. I don't know if it came around with Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood fans just checking the building. Clint Eastwood fans. All of a sudden with Clint Eastwood, you start realizing that it's like, he's not a good guy, right? I mean, he's like the bad guy. In the, he's, like, oh, I mean, he's, he's like doing bad things. But you find yourself rooting for the bad guy to, to win. All right, let me give you another example, a more recent remake. Have you guys have seen Ocean's Eleven? Anybody? That's not more recent, I guess. That's been several years ago. But it's, it's 11 guys who get together and think about what they're doing. Three, they're, they're trying to rob three casinos out of $150 million. And how many of you guys find yourself in the, watching the movie, like hoping they get it done, right? They're robbing people and we're cheering for them, right? Italian job, same thing. It's like, we're hoping that they rob people. And that's what we find ourselves doing. It's just like flipped upside down. How do you guys know we live kind of in a culture like that, where it's kind of flipped upside down sometimes, right? We live in a culture where it almost seems like we—it almost seems like people are rooting for bad instead of good. It's almost as if the prophet Isaiah had something, and he knew something was up. And he says in Isaiah chapter five, verse twenty, he says, "Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil; who put darkness for light, and light for darkness; who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter; who to those." Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Hey, you guys know that kind of describes some of the world we live in today, right? I mean, it's like people are calling good evil and evil good. It's like all upside down. And so if we want to have this fruit of the spirit of goodness in our life, then we have to understand some things about even what good is, Right? We have to understand what good is. And so the first thing that I'm going to say about that is going to seem very obvious and very foundational, and it is obvious and foundational, but it still needs to be stated, and that is this. Number one, God is good. Can somebody say amen to that? He's good all the time. God is good, right? God is good. Goodness is in God's nature. And so since goodness is in God's nature, it also shows up in what God creates, how many of you guys remember the first of the year I started to teach about the Hebrew word for good? Does anybody remember what the Hebrew word is? Tov. Good. You guys are paying attention. Tov. And it shows up at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it goes all the way through chapter one, listing all of the things that he creates. And he kept saying, it is tov, it is tov, it is good, it is good. And you get to verse 31. It says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very tov. It was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. 
So several times in chapter one, it's tov, it's tov, it's tov. Almost seven, over 700 times in scripture, it alludes to this idea of being tov or being good. Scripture talks about taste and see that the Lord is what? Tov, good, yes. And so we see this all over the place. We see that tov and mercy, or goodness and mercy, we could say, will follow you all the days of your life. And then we get here to the New Testament in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 and 23, where it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and we see the New Testament version of this. Now, this word goodness shows up in the New Testament in many different ways. Uh, here, I believe the word is only used four times, but it's still the essence of the same idea that God is tov and he wants to give you some of that tovness. Now, we know that in scripture, just a little refresher, that even though God created everything as tov, things began to quickly unravel. And God said, saw that Adam didn't have a family, he said that's not tov. And then all of a sudden, Eve you know, gets tempted, Adam and Eve gets tempted by the fruit. You know, God puts a, plant, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, and he says, you can eat of any tree, but don't eat of that one. And then sin enters the world, and have you guys know, things became not tov very, very quickly as sin entered the world. Genesis chapter three, verse eight, they hid themselves, they ultimately lost their identity before God. They, they hid themselves because what was a you know, relationship with God that was very open, very normal, very natural, all of a sudden became very hidden and very secretive, and they lost their identity that was not tov. Genesis chapter three, verse 17, the ground gets cursed because of sin. And the whole purpose of why they were put on in that garden, the Garden of Eden, was to tend to the garden. And now they, the ground was cursed, and so they have a broken purpose. And they went from dominion over all creation to surrendering the dominion to Satan. That was not Tov as well. Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, they get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which was, Eden literally means God's delight. And they get evicted from that place. That was not Tov. They lost the place where God put them. And so we could say that the story of Scripture in one sense is, you know, God making everything tove, sin entering into the world and things not being tove, and that God is on a rescue mission between now and, and heaven to make, to re-tove the earth or to re-Eden humanity. And that is the storyline of Scripture. And we get to be a part of that. Do you realize that we get to be a part of cooperating with God to re-tove the world or to re-good the world the way God originally intended. But how many of you guys will admit that there are times in your life, or maybe you've ever been in a situation in your life where it didn't look like God was good? It didn't look like it, right? And maybe it's a situation, maybe it's a time, maybe it's something that happened in your life, and it didn't look like God was good. Or maybe it just was like, where is God? Why is God silent? Why is God not showing up? Or why would God leave me here? Why would God lead me here? Has anybody ever been there before, right? We all have. So what do you do in that situation? Well, first we have to settle some things. And the first thing we have to settle is the very point that I made at the very beginning, which is this. We have to settle theologically, we know from scripture and everything we have available to us, no matter what we're experiencing, God is good. No matter what we're experiencing, theologically, we settle it. We settle that God is good and that God will never lead us to an ending, a final ending that is bad. We have to settle that deep down in our heart 
that no matter what is happening, that God is good and God will not lead us to a final ending that is bad. And so that leaves us a few options of response if you find yourself in a situation where it doesn't look like God is tov. One is this, God is good. But the world hasn't been retoved yet in its completion. The world is in a broken state and it's being retoved. And so there's some mystery in there. The second option is this, and you might employ all these options, but the second one is this, God is good. And I may not be right. See, sometimes we misunderstand because we think, well, I've got everything right. I did everything right. I, 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 you know, the way I'm seeing it is right. But if you start with God is good, you have to also then say, if I don't understand what's happening, I may not be right. And see, what I, I see a lot of times is we want to say, you know, that this situation is not good, but we want to maintain how right we are. How many of you guys have been there before? I have. It's like, I'm, I know I'm right. I don't know what God's doing, but I know I'm right, right? God is good. I may not be right. Another thing, number three is this. God is good. And I may not, just not understand what's happening here that is good. Number four is this. God is good. I don't understand, but one day I will understand. God is good, but this is not the end. But either way, any of these responses have to start with God is good. Amen? And God is good. And you have to go from knowledge of God being good to belief in God being good. And that's really a long distance for many of us at times. And so let me, let me just put this up on the screen. It's going to help us. If we want to experience more of this goodness, the fruit of the Spirit, we have to start with this idea that we experience God's goodness when we settle in our hearts that God is always good, and then we arrange everything else in our life around that truth. We have to start with this idea, this truth that we know God is good, and he is always good. And if there's any situation in my life, I cannot look through the situation in, through, the, the situ, through the lens of I may be right or I have to understand or any of those other things. I have to start with the lens of God is good and everything I see has to go through that lens that God is good. Can somebody say amen to that? Now I arrange everything else in my life around that. I, I, I have to arrange everything else, every other thought, every other idea, every other experience, every other category has to filter itself through that lens that God is good. Now, my wife, Becca, is going to help come preach this point. Give her a big hand as she comes up. So doubting the goodness of God is like the oldest trick in the devil's book. And I think it's one of the ones he uses most often. Um, if you go all the way back to the original temptation with Eve, that was basically behind what the devil was lying to her about. He was basically saying, God told you one thing, but it's really something else, and he's not good. If you think about Jesus in the wilderness, the gist of what the devil was lying to about Jesus is, you want authority? Well, I've got a way to give it to you. My way is better than God's ways. God isn't good. If you think about Mary and Martha, they literally said to God, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And in an accusatory way, they're basically um, accusing Jesus of not caring by not being there. And then the disciples in the boat, who again, literally said, Lord, you don't care that we're dying. And so um, 
I want to say two things about that. And one, of, one thing is that if you are doubting the goodness of God, which if you're not right now, you have or you will be, then you're in good company. I mean, look at this. That's just the tip of the iceberg with all the examples in the Bible of all the times that the devil tried to lie to get you to doubt the goodness of God. You're in good company. And the second thing is, look how many different forms that can take. I think that a lot of times we don't necessarily say in our heads, God isn't good. But how many times have you caught yourself saying, God, you're not listening. Is God even listening to me? God doesn't hear me. God doesn't care about me. God isn't acting the way that I think he should or when I think he should. Has anyone thought that before? Is anyone ready to be perfectly honest? I could put both hands up multiple times. So I think that one thing that can encourage us is when those thoughts come, I think half the battle is realizing that it's a battle, that you are being attacked, that it's not just a random thought that's coming to your head that's just normal. No, it's a lie, and you have to fight it like you would fight a lie. And to just realize that, that that's a lie. Anytime you are tempted to think, God doesn't care, God's not listening, it's a lie, and you have to fight it. Ephesians 6.11 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And like I said, I think this is the oldest and the most used scheme that he has. And so if you keep reading after that, the next seven verses after that, um, that the Bible lists seven, uh, God, God loves the number seven, God lists seven types of armor. And I'm gonna go through these just really quick as like three things we can do when we are tempted to doubt God's goodness. We can rest, we can act, and we can stand. So we rest on righteousness, peace, and salvation. These are three things that God has given us no matter what, no matter what your circumstances look like, no matter what your life looks like, no matter what people are doing to you, you can always rest that you have the righteousness of God, that you have the peace of God, and that God has saved you from your sins. Amen? Amen. Amen. So, and then after, after you can rest on that, after you settle yourself on that, then you act. And the next two are prayer and the word of God. And what does that mean? That basically just means you keep going. You keep doing the things that you know you're supposed to. You keep praying. You keep reading your Bible. Even if you feel like God's not listening or he doesn't care, you just keep going. And then the last one I'm most excited about, because that's kind of the battle one, and that's you stand. You stand in faith and you stand in truth. And just like Sean's point was, that everything else in your life has to rest on the fact that you know that God is good. So let everything else just fall to the wayside and just stand on that truth that God is good and just draw a line in the sand, get tenacious and just be like, I don't care what happens, I don't care what's going to happen, but I'm going to stand that God is good. I'm going to stand on that fact and I'm never going to believe that lie that God isn't good. And so I just wanna encourage you to fight, to fight when you get tempted, any form that God isn't good, fight it as a lie, because that's what it is. Amen. Amen. All right, so let me define goodness. Um, I looked at, as I was studying this week, I looked at several definitions, and I didn't like any of them, so I just made up my own. So you can probably poke holes in this one if you want to, but I like this one, and it really helps me think about the goodness of God. So here's the definition I came up with. Goodness is whatever God finds beautiful, desirable, beneficial, and morally right. Whatever God finds 
beautiful, desirable, beneficial, and morally right. So point number two is this, goodness is whatever God approves of. So every time God said it was good when he was in creation, what was he doing? He was approving of things. He was saying, this is good. This is beautiful. This is desirable. This is beneficial. This is morally right. He was approving of it over and over and over again. Now, some of us might think, isn't good obvious though? I mean, why does, why does it take God to approve what is good? Isn't good obvious, especially to us as believers? Well, John Bevere makes this point in his book, Good or God?, he makes this point that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve had everything that was right. There was no sin. There was no, I mean, they had perfect communion with God. God would come down in the cool of the day and he would meet with them and he would walk with them. There was no history. Think about Adam and Eve. They had no baggage. They had no parents that had spoken words that were wrong over them. They had no relationships that were strained and yet still fell for a trick. So how does that happen? Genesis chapter three, verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And he makes the point that it wasn't the evil side of the tree of knowledge and good and evil that Eve was attracted to. It was actually the good. Now remember, they had the perfect setup, but yet she wasn't attracted to something evil. She was actually attracted to something good that wasn't God. So is it possible that even us as believers in a way less perfect situation, could it be that there might be times in our life where we may not see the same good thing that what we think is good may not actually be God? And if, so Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12 says this, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, if you think that verse just applies to people who don't know God, or maybe who are falling away from God, I want you to uh, listen to these stats. Barna Research, a respected research firm, did some research that was recent, I believe it was 2021 and 2022, even spilling over into that, uh, about the, about Americans' worldview. Now, a worldview is simply this. It's a filter through which you experience, interpret, and respond to the world. It's basically your decision-making filter. Every single one of us here has a worldview, okay? Now, so they did, a research, they did research of Americans. What are the worldviews of Americans? And I'm glad you're sitting down, okay? Because here, here's a statistic that blew my mind. Only 6% of American adults possess a biblical world view. 6%. Now, other, worlds, other world views hold less percentage because there's, uh, you know, even less subscribed to other worldviews like secular humanism, moralistic therapeutic deism, postmodernism, Eastern mysticism, and uh, Marxism. They hold less percentage. So biblical worldview actually beats those out. But how many of you guys know it doesn't seem like much of a win, does it? <laughs> 6%? So let's dig into this a little bit. Uh, 
Almost nine out of 10. So what is, the, what is the dominant worldview? What's the dominant worldview of Americans? Almost nine out of 10 people. It's 88% of Americans have this worldview, and it's nothing more than a customized personal blend of ideas adopted from multiple philosophies of life. It's called syncretism. It's basically where you pull from all of these other worldviews and you create a worldview that is a mixture of all sorts of worldviews. This is the society that we live in, by the way. This is, now, it doesn't mean that people who hold this dominant worldview of syncretism, it doesn't mean that they don't pull on the biblical worldview. In fact, uh, people in this uh, category do so about 31% of the time they will pull on a big, uh, on biblical worldview. So it doesn't mean that the biblical worldview doesn't have an effect on making their decisions, but it's, what it means is it's far from a defining influence in their life. In fact, almost seven out of 10 times, it doesn't have the effect that it should. Okay. But it has to be better in the church though, right? I mean, surely it's better in the church than 6%. So let's get some statistics. Even though this number has fallen greatly over the last few years, 69%, recent, 69% of U.S. American adults identify as Christian. 69% of American adults identify as Christian and embrace many basic tenets of the faith. Of that group, remember, let's get in our minds, of the group, if we polled 69% of Americans, they would say, I am a Christian. How may, what do you think the percentages of those people who have a biblical worldview? Only 9% of U.S. adults who describe themselves as Christian possess a biblical worldview. That means there would be about 176 million self-identified Christians, but only about 15 million in the United States who have a biblical worldview. So those are self-identified Christians. Now, of these self-identified Christians, let me give you some statistics of reasons why things aren't going so well. 64% of self-identified Christians say that all religious faiths are of equal value. 58% of self-identified Christians in the United States believe that if a person is good enough or does enough good things, they can earn their way into heaven. 58% of self-identified Christians in the United States contend that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being, but is merely a symbol of God's power, presence, or purity. And 57% of self-identified Christians in the United States of America believe in karma. We've, we've got, we got some issues, don't we? All right, so now there's different layers, though, as you start to dig into this data, okay? So we have self-identified Christians, which how many of you guys admit that's a pretty broad category, right? Okay, so you have self-identified Christians. Then you have Christians who would identify themselves as born again. So they're narrowing it down a little bit to say, I'm a born again Christian. And then you have even further self-identified believers that would say that they are evangelical Christians, so narrowing it down even more. And then you have a category that's defined this way that are theologically identified 
as born-again Christians. So in other words, these people who are theologically identified as born-again Christians are people that if you grilled them on some doctrines, they would be able to check the boxes instead of just being all over the board. They, they, you can theologically locate these people as, uh, as born-again Christians theologically. Of that group, theologically identified born-again Christians, which is a much narrower group, Listen to some of these statistics as to what that group believes. 54% of theologically identified born-again believers, 54% accept feelings, experience, and the input of friends and family as their most trusted sources of moral guidance. Of that smaller group. 50% of theologically identified born-again believers, 50% of that group believe that the Holy Spirit is not a real living being. Listen to this one. Of the theologically identified born-again believers, 40% say there is no absolute moral truth. Of that group, 37% believe that if a person is good enough, they can earn their way to heaven. Okay, so no absolute moral truth. That means, that means four out of every 10 of theologically identified born again. That's, that's concerning to say the least. So if you were to take it to like an evangelical church, let's say, that number is not 6% who have a biblical worldview. It actually goes up. And so it goes up to only to about 21%. Now, if that were our church, for example, that would mean that only two out of every 10 people here actually have a biblical worldview, a lens through which you use the Bible and the, the tenets of Scripture to make decisions and to live your life by. What I'm saying is it's very possible that many of us here are just taking pieces of culture, taking pieces of possibly other faiths, taking pieces of what we see online or what we hear in the culture or American Christianity, and we've created a mixture that does not line up with scripture. That's not my opinion. <laughs> That's sobering statistics that are extremely recent. What this ought to do is it ought to cause us to re-examine what we've been approving of in our life, to re-examine how am I making decisions? And I could give you tons of statistics. I could keep going, we don't have time. It's, it's sadly, it's fascinating, um, but it's, it's crazy. Colossians chapter two, verse six. I'm gonna have the worship team come up because we're gonna do something right here in the middle of the message. We're gonna receive communion because I think we need it. <laughs> I think we need to go back to the cross. Colossians chapter two, verse six through eight says this. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it. Okay, this is, this is, the, this is what I'm contending for in this message right now. And I know this is probably not the message you expected on goodness, but this is how God gave it to me. But this is what I'm contending for right now. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. 
Let's get back to the scriptures. Let's not, let's not let culture inform us. Let's not let all of these other worldviews inform us. Let's not let syncretism become the dominant worldview of Journey Church where we just take here and there and what we like and what we don't like and we just become something that is unrecognizable to God. It says, let no one take you captive. And so the heart that we ought to have and what this ought to lead us to is this heart of repentance that says, God, I wanna let what you approve of be what I approve of. I wanna let your heart be my heart. And one of the ways we experience God's goodness, okay, remember, goodness is whatever God approves of, right? You might call that holiness or whatever, but it, it certainly applies. We experience God's goodness when we agree with what God approves of. And we just simply say, God, whatever you say, I trust is good. Your ways are good. The way that you want me to filter my life is good. The way you want me to make decisions is good. And so I felt like we just needed to take this moment right in the middle of the message and we're gonna come out of it and I'm gonna preach point three and you guys are gonna be a lot happier, okay, when I get done with point three. But can we come just to a moment of repentance right now before God? And maybe we don't even know what that is because maybe we're deceived right now. But can we come to the point where we say, God, I don't know what I don't know, but would you show me? And when we come to the, to the table, there's tables in back, tables in front. What we're gonna do is we're going to just remember the blood of Jesus that was spilt for us and the body of Jesus that was broken for us that he took our sin, he took our place, that he died for us and he took our sin on the cross and he nailed sin to the cross and he rose from the dead and it was for freedom that he set us free. He didn't go through that and, and we're going through all these motions just so that we could go back into being captive to the world's ways. He came so that we might be set free, that we might become a new creation, that we might have a new way of living that it might be in him that we live, that we move, that we have our being, that he might actually affect what we do and our thoughts and how we process life and the words that we say and the relationships, the kind of relationships that we have and the things that we approve of and the things that we don't approve of. See, what happens is when we come to the table, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us and we lay down anything that is not like Jesus and we lay it down at the cross because we wanna take back only Jesus. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for what you have done on the cross and Holy Spirit, because we believe you are real. <laughs> Would you come and work on us? You're not just an impersonal force or power, but you are also God. And would you come and work on us? And so I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna come and, and grab the elements and just take them back at your seat, receive them whenever you're comfortable, have a moment with God, have a moment of repentance possibly, have a moment of celebration, of praise, whatever God leads you in. And then I'm gonna come back and, and we'll finish this up. But God, we, we want to receive all that you have for us. Lord, we want to experience your goodness, not, our, not our, what we approve of, we want to, we want to experience all that you do. And so God, we come to the cross and, and to the table and, we're a table and we're reminded of the cross and we just lay anything down again that does not belong. And we say, God, have your way in us.
Have your way in us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's come and let's receive. Let me just wrap up here. Point number three is this. Goodness is whatever God gives us. James chapter one, verse 17 says this. says, every good and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. How many of you guys are thankful for the good gifts that God brings in your life? Whatever God brings in your life, that is Good things. Now, John Bevere goes on to say in his book, he says, there is nothing good for you outside of God's will. It doesn't matter how good something looks, how happy something makes you, how much fun it is, how rich and successful you'll become, how deeply spiritual it appears, how sensible it seems, how popular or accepted it is, and the list goes on and on. If something is contrary to the wisdom or the word of God, it will ultimately be detrimental and bring sorrow into your life. And I believe he's right about that. But that means that the reverse is also true. That means that the good things that God does bring into your life, that means that everything God gives us then is beautiful, is desirable, is beneficial, and is morally right. But how many of you guys know that sometimes we get too familiar with the good gifts God does put in our life? Have you ever been there before? I mean, just think about it. Think about, you know, I know everyone's across the board on maybe what you're experiencing in life right now, but even if you're in a strained relationship right now, there's probably relationships that God has put in your life that are good gifts from God. I mean, think about how we take our relationships for granted, even in struggles at times, but God gives us our relationships as gifts and many times we just take them for granted because we are always mourning the last season that we've lost or looking forward to a season we don't have, right? And we, look, we lose the, the, what God has given us right now. My friend, Pastor Clint Sprague, says this all the time. He says, these are the good old days. And I've thought about that many times because in every season that I find myself in, I tend to think that that somewhere in the past was the good old days or somewhere in the future will be the good old days. But then I start to sit in that, that thankfulness and gratitude and I start to really think about what God has gifted me and I think, yeah, these are the good old days. I will one day look back at these days right now, even in struggles, even in situations, but I will be reminded that this time, this time of life, these people that God has surrounded me with, these are the good old days. We take them for granted, but they're good gifts from God. They're beautiful, they're desirable, they're beneficial, they're morally right that God put them there. How many of you guys have ever taken God's mercy or his grace for granted? Maybe too familiar, I have. But you think about how God's grace can lose its beauty to us. And what I'm, I just wanna challenge us right now just for a moment to fight for the beauty and the awe of God's grace and his mercy once again in our life to fight for that, to, to do whatever we can to not get so familiar with it that we end up setting those gifts on a shelf and they're no longer meaningful or they no longer have the beauty or the desire that they once had. What about even the place where God has put, put you? You know, I, I was thinking about this the other day and last night I wore my flannel shirt like I was willing in fall or something like that, right? 
But I've been, I've been, no, I've been convicted lately because, you know, I've been going through the summer and I'm like, oh man, it's hot. You know, the only thing summer's good for is running outside. You're sweating anyway. Might as well sweat a lot, right? And I found, and God, I just found God convicting me. He's like, I put you in this place. Why don't you enjoy where I put you? And I know that sounds maybe silly to some people, but I was really convicted by that. And I was really like, God, you did place me here for a reason. This is a gift. You've placed me in this city. You've placed me in this church. You've placed me around these people. You've placed me in this place for a reason. And I'm going to enjoy the gifts that God gives me. I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily saying it's a sin to not enjoy. I don't know theologically where that's at. But it probably is a little insulting to God when we don't enjoy the gifts that he's given us. I mean, think about when you give your gifts to a kid, your kid and they seem to not even care about it, right? There's some sort of disappointment, right? I just wonder if God might feel that way sometimes. But we experience, if you want to experience more of God's goodness in your life and the fruit of the Spirit to grow, we experience God's goodness when we embrace the gifts God gives us. So I want to challenge you to embrace that these are the good old days. Embrace the gifts that God has placed in your life right now to the fullest. And I've said this many times. It's a rabbinic saying. I like the saying because it points us to a biblical truth, I believe. It can sound a little bit heavy-handed, but I still believe there's something to it. It says, God will one day hold us each accountable for all the things he created for us to enjoy, but we refuse to do so. Whenever I read that, you know what it does? It just convicts me of the things in my life that God has given me these good gifts that I'm just ignoring. It's like, it's not, I've got to repent. You know, repent just simply means to change the way we think. You know, sometimes we get a negative, really negative view of the word repent. It simply means to change the way. It just, I need to change the way I think about the good, good gifts that God has put in my life. To delight in the gifts God gives us. Now I'm going to close with this. And this is how I kind of saw it as I was preparing this message. I want to close by praying a prayer of blessing of God's goodness over you. And these, this prayer of blessing, God led me, led me to three distinct places in Scripture. Two of them are out of Deuteronomy chapter 28, and one of them is Psalm chapter 23. And I, you know, obviously this is in an ancient culture, and so they talk about cattle and livestock and different things like that. But you can transfer it to your business or to your relationships or to your house or whatever you want to do. But I really believe that I'm supposed to speak this as a blessing over you and that you are to receive it not just as words that are being said, but to actually receive it as a blessing from God, to receive and to be reminded of God's goodness in your life. And to do this, I'm gonna ask you if you would stand as I read these words. They're straight from scripture. And you might put yourself in a posture, whatever it is for you. Some people like to kind of hold their hands out in a gesture of receiving. Others of you, you might just be opening up your heart. But uh, we're getting ready to enter into a time of worship. So you guys can go ahead and, and hit the lights there. And we're just going to put our, our posture of our heart in a place of receiving. And again, I want you to receive this as a blessing from God because they are straight from God's word. Deuteronomy 28, starting verse three. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in 
and blessed shall you be when you go out. Verse 11, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the fruit of your womb, in the fruit of your livestock, in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, his, the heavens to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all the work of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. Psalm 23 says this and receive this as a blessing and pray this as a prayer, even in your heart. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Lord, we receive that blessing from you. That blessing encompassed all of the areas of our life that I can think of. Lord, we want to experience your goodness, what you approve of. We want to embrace the gifts that you have given us. And we say that everything you do, everything you are, and everything you give is beautiful, desirable, beneficial, and morally right. And Lord, we receive that and we worship you. And we say, God, you are all that we need. You are everything. And we declare that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's worship one more time.